Welcome back to another fun-filled episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. Woohoo! Bang 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 bang! Yay! And as you can, that's okay. As you can hear, joining me again today is my friend Chad. Today's show is for the game masters. Now, of course, you know players hopefully will enjoy this as well. But we're really going to be focusing on some problems that game masters have to deal with. But before we do that, just a couple podcasts I'd like to recommend that I've I've listened to. Uh, when I started listening to recently, uh, it's called Crit Heads. It's a live play or actual play session uh, podcast, and you can find it on SoundCloud.com backslash Crit Heads. Uh, Crit Heads is all one word. Um, so if you're into the li- the you know the the play session episodes. You know, take a look at that. You might like it. Uh, also, a good friend of mine, Dan, does an episode or does a podcast, Radio Free Borderlands. But of course, longtime listeners, will, you'll you'll recognize Dan, and hopefully, you've had a chance to go on uh, check out some of his uh, podcast episodes. But on to today's topic: game mastering is a fine art, and I think that's something that a lot of people would agree with, right? Absolutely, because. You know, it does take a certain, uh, you know, it does take a certain touch, a certain skill to it. You know, you're not just sitting there with a, a, you know, a module or behind a DM screen and, you know, rolling stuff. There's a lot you have to consider. I mean, well, you know, there are DMs that do that. And yes. those DMs don't last long. Yep. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, you really got to be able to keep the story going. And sometimes if you're doing like, uh, pre-written modules, you know, sometimes you got to make adjustments because maybe you've got an adventure that was written for, you know, six to eighth level characters, but your party is only level three and four. So you might have to do some adjustments or maybe there's a, you know, long sword of dragon slain plus five somewhere in there. And maybe you don't want your characters to have that sword right away. So sometimes you got to make some changes you know, to the adventure. And, you know, of course you got to be afraid. You have to not be afraid to, you know, ham it up. Um, you know, go try outside to do the box. Yep. Go outside the box, do different voices for characters, but not everyone likes game mastering. I've talked to a couple people over the years who they feel that game mastering is sometimes something you get stuck with. It's not something that you, sh- that, you know, you would enjoy doing. So would you agree or disagree that game mastering is something that you get stuck with and it's, you know, because it's not as much fun as just being an actual player? I strongly and vehemently disagree. Is that is that strong enough? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I started role-playing late, actually, compared to most gamers. I was 18 years old, I was in college, and I started playing. It took me, I'm going to say right around six to nine months before I was behind the screen. And I'm kind of a amateur actor. I've been on stage well over 30 times. So to me, it was just an extension of, of acting. Except I got to tell the story instead of telling somebody else's story. Yeah, and I mean, definitely playing can be a lot of fun, but there is a certain joy of game mastering and presenting the challenges and getting the story out there. And what really is awesome is when you get your players really excited about your campaign. Um, I mean, I've mentioned this in a, 
Oh, it must have been a while ago, but I have a friend, Casey, who's helped me with several episodes. And, you know, I think I've mentioned about a Marvel uh, superhero campaigns that she did with me. And I remember when I first started that, I'm like, this is going to be a short campaign. We'll probably only do like two or three months. Well, one year later, the campaign finally ended because the players are like, let's keep going. Let's do more. And it's just... The campaign ended with the players saving the universe from Doctor Doom. It's like, after your character has saved the universe from Doctor Doom, where else is there to go? You retire to a private island because you can afford it now. Yep, and then you you create your next band of uh, of, of brave uh, superheroes. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, so I mean, it, it is a mark, I think, of a good DM when you can really get the players that anticipate and really invested in the campaign where they don't want it to end. They want to keep going with these same characters. And I I suppose this is something we could devote an entire episode to down the line, but I I know, of course, there's a difference between short-term campaigns and long-term campaigns. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a a difference in how you set them up, what you do, what you allow to happen. Um, You know, and just to make it quick, I'm running a summer campaign, okay? Okay. a buddy of mine and I, every summer from June, the first Tuesday or Thursday, this year it's Thursday in June, to the last Thursday in August, we go out into the public, we sit at a, at a coffee shop, and we bring our games for people to play. I always run an RPG, because I always have people that are coming back year to year going, are you going to run an RPG again? So when I do these, I let them go crazy. I'm like, here are all the books I own, make a character. It's short term. It's it's uh, you know, fifteen uh, fifteen sessions or something like that. Where if I'm going to do a long running campaign, a weekly campaign or a monthly campaign that's going to last, I get very restrictive and let it, what I let my characters my my people make. And you know, a lot of people might go, "Well, doesn't that make people not want to play?" Actually, no. <laughs> it makes them want to play more <laughs> in a yeah. lot of cases. Yeah, and I'd have to say that I over the years I've I've transitioned from focusing on the short-term campaigns to the long-term campaigns and uh cuz when I was in high school I hooked up with a group of kids in another city and what we would do is we would we tended to run short-term campaigns where it might be like one of the and we also had the luxury of gaming every week or almost every weekend so you know, it would be like, okay, uh, one of us would be like, okay, I've got an idea. We're going to make a, you know, third to fifth level characters. And then we would do, you know, this adventure for third to fifth level characters for the next, you know, three, two, three months. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, after that, someone might be like, well, instead of Dungeons and Dragons, let's do, you know, I've got this idea for a vampire, the masquerade campaign. So we might do vampire for a couple months and then maybe we might try, um, you know, a palladium uh, session for a, you know, a few, for a few weeks. So it, it was kind of fun because we got to really, I got to try some other role playing games that I probably wouldn't have otherwise been able to, to play. Now, of course, the disadvantage to doing those short term campaigns is sometimes you create these characters, you know, you'll, you'll create a character, let's say just a fifth level character and then, you know, you play him for a little bit, and then you don't get to play him ever again. Yeah, it's a, it's an attachment thing. Yes. So, you know, I, um, my players a lot of times they'll say, you know, they'll ask me questions, and I go, well, 
there, there's two things to remember. One, you want to be able to play this character and, you know, connect with the character. You want to be able to have that feeling of it's not a piece of paper. It's actually, you know, a character. Yes, it's a living, you know, it's it's a live. well, figuratively speaking. Right. It's a living entity, you know. So, right. yeah, and that's one of the nice things about long-term campaigns is you have the opportunity to you know, really expand the character and then not only that, but, you know, you can do certain traits, you know, you can, uh, and the second thing I tell them is just remember, it's a piece of paper. Now you'll go, um, didn't you just tell them to be connected to it? (laughs) And yes, I did. But the thing is, is especially like my youngest daughter, when she started playing, she was so worried that her character was going to die. You know, she went, completely the other way. She was like, you know, I don't want to do this and I don't want to do that because my character might die. And I said, yeah, your character might die, but how boring is it going to be? You know, it's it's like the old saying. Well, if I, you know, if I eat right and I exercise and I don't smoke and I don't drink and I live to be 100, what's the point? I'm still going to die eventually. Well, you're still going to die. And so you lived 100 years doing nothing fun. Yeah, I understand. And um, you know, because one guy I gamed with for a while who's, a, you know, was I think he was like about maybe 10 years older than us, but he was saying that there's one module that taught him that a character is a piece of paper you don't get attached to. Tomb, Tomb of, of Horrors. <laughs> Do I need to elaborate? No. Um, in fact, I have my signed Gary Gygax copy. Oh, that is awesome. Um, but uh, it, it is awesome, but I played... I, in fact, when I had him sign it, this is a this is a quick Gary story. I was at Gen Con. It was the one year I went to Gen Con in Indy. It was 2007. Gary was doing autograph signings. Now, I had met Gary eight months earlier or something like that at um, Lake Geneva Con. And, you know, I had talked to him, and he had done a tour, and I had paid to go see the tour of where all the old TSR stuff was. And it was kind of really cool. But so I'm standing in line, standing in line. I finally get up there and I walk up there and I hand him my stuff. And he looks up at me and he goes, he thinks for a second and he goes, Lake Geneva Con. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, and he thought <laughs> a little bit more and he's like, Chad. And I'm like, I mean, I was blown away, dude. I mean, Gary Gygax is like, remembers me, right? That is awesome. That's a story you can tell your children. <laughs> yes. And it gets better though. So I hand him the few books I had with me that I wanted him to sign. Which was like, uh, 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 well, it was the, uh, it was the Tomb of Horrors. Yeah. It was the Oriental Adventures and Unearthed Arcana. Okay. Okay. And I, and, uh, we're, and he's done, I'm talking to him and he starts flipping through the Tomb of Horrors. And he's just like, and he just got like really nostalgic about it. And he goes, why don't you come back here? And he points to a chair. So I go behind the table and I'm sitting there talking to Gary, right? And we're going through it, and he's and he's pointing at stuff, and he's talking, and I'm like, just so you know, I said, we're still playing through this. I said, I I bought a copy of this for you to sign, but I said I've never read it, and we had just gotten to the point where there's a there's a um, oh spoiler alert orb of annihilation in this <laughs> sphere of annihilation sphere of annihilation inside the mouth of this really creepy face wall thing. I said something about it. I said, we're, we're trying to figure out what this is. And we're, and I was kind of telling him and he looks at me, he looks me dead in the eyes and he goes, just remember a snake is a snake. 
And I'm like, what the hell does that mean? And he just kind of chuckles and he moves on, you know? But at, at finally I'm like, should should you be? And he's like, he kind of looks at me and goes, they'll wait. So I sat there for 20 minutes at Gen Con 2007 talking to Gary Gygax. It was just, it was amazing, dude. As, a, as an old school player, it was just like, oh. That is amazing. Because <laughs> I, I only had a chance to, I mean, I didn't meet him like personally, but after Gen Con left Milwaukee, there was another company that was trying to come in to fill the void. And they had this uh, convention, Game Fest. Unfortunately, it only lasted, I think it only lasted like maybe one or two years. Okay. It didn't last long. But the the year I went, which was 2005, Gary was there giving a seminar about what he felt, you know, the the nature of the game industry was. Okay. So, uh, you know, we didn't really, my friend uh, Dan uh, and I were there and, you know, we got there early. You know, we just small talk. But we didn't really, you know, get too specific with it. So, but that is awesome. Your Gygax story is better than mine. <laughs> should, I, should I put the cherry on the top? Sure. One more part to that story. So every year at Lake Geneva Con, Gary would handpick a group of people to go play D&D on his front porch. He asked me to go. Unfortunately, I couldn't. Oh, man. But just the fact that he's like, hey, you want to come to my house and role play? I'm like, oh. You, you know what movie kind of, what movie scene that reminds me of? What's Wayne, that? Wayne's World. When Wayne and Garth met Alice Cooper and he's like, you know, no, stay, stay, hang out with us. And, uh, oh, yeah. you know, we're it's not like, we're yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, Wayne and Garth are like, yeah, we'll stay and hang out with Alice Cooper and they get on the hands and knees, not worthy, but (laughs) on to today's topic. So, you know, we agree that game master, both of us are on the same page game mastering. If you're doing it correctly, it's not something you get stuck with. It's something that can be enjoyed. It's a fine skill and an art that can be developed, but there are some problems that game masters do have to face and, that the players don't necessarily consider sometimes. So we have a list of a few topics we wanted to discuss. Uh, The first one is absent and late players. And this is something that it is understandable. Um, Unfortunately, sometimes people get called into work or, you know, their kid gets sick or just something is going to prevent them from either getting there on time or getting there at all. Yeah. So what is your take on absent and late players? I mean, I think late players are going to be the, the easier to deal with because at least from my experience, most of the time, if one of my players is not going to be arriving, they're usually pretty good about saying, Hey, I'm going to be two hours late. Right. Um, or like or two. I mean, honestly, there, there's a couple ways I deal with it. It, and it, and and there's dependencies on how I deal with it. Um, usually for absent gamers, one or two ways I deal with it. I can I'll say to them, if you feel comfortable with somebody else running your character next time, give them your character. The other one is if you don't feel comfortable with someone running your character, or your character has some dark secret or whatever, there's two things I can do. I love the term amorphous blob. <laughs> 
or Mark the Red from the movie The Gamers. Yes, you know, that's what I was actually thinking of. Is he's there, but he's not. Yeah, and this is one of the things in, that I loved about uh, The Gamers. It was a movie written about gamers, for gamers, by gamers. And yeah, one of the players was actually absent, so they always just had, you know, when they were, they were, see, they jump back and forth between what the players are doing and what the characters are doing. And whenever they're going to what the characters are doing, since Mark wasn't there through most of it, he's just standing there, you know, looking off into the distance. <laughs> Except when Mark finally gets there, then his character actually does something. Right. And it, well, and it's like, you know, he was the fighter, so he comes along, and, and when does somebody remember Mark's even there? Oh, we're getting into battle. Where's Mark? Yep. Yeah. And, yeah, because the, the way I always do... Now, first, if if a character, or actually if a player is absent, do you do any sort of penalty for the character? Like, do you deny him the experience points he would have gained from that session? Because I've... I've heard there are some game masters that will do that to a player where it's yeah, like... Yeah, see, that would be an absolutely um, ridiculous thing for me to do because about two years ago, I stopped using XP altogether. My characters now realize that I have a story. I have a story that's going to a certain conclusion, and you will level when the story tells me you should level. You know, that's an interesting approach. Because it's like, okay, well, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be level 12 when I want you to be level 12. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, that is actually a very interesting approach. I've never heard of anyone doing something like that well, before. Well, I actually stole that from another game master, <laughs> one guy that I play with. And when he first said that, he goes, and I said, okay, so I'm like, you know, he's like, you know, make a level three character. And I'm like, okay, where in the XP range do you want me? He's just like, make a level three character. And I'm like, right, but where in the XP level do you want me? And he goes, I don't use XP. And then he explained it to me. And I'm like, you know. That's I'm, a good idea. <laughs> so I, the next game I started, I said, okay, guys, I'm going to try this. I said, this is, you know, I'm going to try to do this thing where I'm not going to give you XP. And the whole table kind of looked at me like, what? I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell the story. And when the story dictates that we level up, I will level you up as a group. So, and they're like, all right, we'll try it, I guess. And now if I run a game and I say, okay, guys, here's your XP. They all kind of look at me like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I'll, you know, next time I actually run a session, I'll have to try that sometimes, because like I said, that does sound like kind of an interesting idea. And um, um, But yes, I have played with DMs who don't give you your XP or whatever, but you know, for me, that leads to other problems. It leads to an unbalanced group. It leads to um, one of the problems we're going to talk about later, infighting, you know, and especially in the older versions where if you were the one who happened to, you know, send that killing blow... You got more XP than everybody else. I would never use that rule uh, where it's like, okay, the person who strikes the death blow gets like an extra 100 XP or something because it's like, okay, I've got enough things as a game master I have to keep track of. Do I really want to keep track of a kill count for everyone and be like, okay, now, um, you know, your care, we have a base of like a thousand XP everyone gets and, you know, you killed this many monsters. So you get an extra 500, you get an extra 200. When I did use that rule, which was really early on in my gaming, in, in my GMing career, because, you know, that's what the book said, so that's what I did, because um, I, I started out running second ed, I didn't have to keep track of it. 
they all knew what their kill ratio was. <laughs> yeah, because I only when I was younger, uh, one of my the, the friends of mine that I gamed with, he did use the rule where, you know, because like for example, they say like uh, wizards, and you know they get 100 XP per level of each spell they cast. Which okay, some people might think seems like an unfair advantage, but then again, you got to consider that wizards need more XP to advance than everyone else. And, you know, fighters are supposed to get a bonus based on the number of hit dice killed, and rogues get a bonus for every time they use a thieving skill, and I think... Well, they player... get a bonus also. You get a... In, in second ed, you got an XP for every... And this is the way it was written, so follow me on this. For every piece of gold that you get, basically... I forget what the exact word was. You got an XP. Yeah, and I think they even had something like that with magic items where, okay, you find a longsword plus one. Everyone in the party, okay, you that's worth uh, a thousand XP divided between the group. And right. that never made sense to me. But this was my favorite part. So at one point, I was more of a min-maxer than a character builder like I do now. I enjoy the process of building the character, right? So I would go around with a bag of 100 gold pieces, and I would hand it to somebody in the group, and then I'd ask for it back. I'd just gain 100 XP. Oh, so yeah, I mean, the Game Master, you sort of like the Game Master, but it says so in the book. <laughs> right, well, and, and I actually gained about three levels before he really figured out, I mean, I told him what I was doing. But I remember there was one uh, TSR supplement I read. It may have been in a Dragon Magazine article, but, you know, they were clarifying that, like with, for example, Wizards, you know, they should only gain XP for spells they cast if they use it for a purpose. You know, if your wizard casts Lightning Bolt at a dragon, he used that spell for a purpose. However, if your wizard walks into the woods and starts throwing lightning bolts and fireballs and magic missiles at, you know, rabbits and, and deer... No, you don't get XP for that. Right. And they did, they clarified with the rogue too. You, it was only gold you got through, you know, through looting, through theft, through, you know, it wasn't just, oh, I acquired 100 gold because Bob gave it to me. Yeah. Woo! Yeah. Cause the way I always felt with like absent players, I mean, come on, we have to be human and we have to understand that life happens. You know, sometimes you are going to have to work on a Sunday or whenever you game, or sometimes you are going to be late because your kid is sick or whatnot. So what I always do is I always tell my players that if, if you're not able to be there, don't worry, you'll still get your full XP. I assume your character is there and doing something. Um, so what I might do is, like, let's say that the person playing the cleric is absent. You know, I'll, I'll still say, okay, your character's there, but I'll keep track of how many spells that cleric would have, and then it'd be like, I would just use him for, like, healing. Um, and if, like, let's say someone playing the, the, the biggest, baddest fighter in the party was absent, I might reduce the, the number of enemies encountered. Like, let's say they're, they're supposed to go into a room and there's ten orcs there, but, you know, like, one or two of the players are absent, instead of making them fight 10 orcs, I might say, okay, you're only fighting six orcs. Right, so, yeah. Beefy McBeefer Beefer is gone, so you need, to, uh, you, need to, you need to pull it back. You know, the other thing I did is I had a player one time who was gone 
um, just a little over a month. He had went home to visit family, and he was gone for a month. I knew in advance he was going to be gone, so I actually said, okay, the week before he left, we got together, and I said, okay, what do you want to do? And we decided that he was going to do some sort of a side mission. So that night during the game, I worked that into the game. He left. And then when he got back, we sat down and we actually role-played for the, well, I wouldn't say the equivalent, but for the equivalent of game time that he was gone. And then he hooked back up with the group. That is cool. That's a good idea. I wish I could do that. It's just I usually don't have the time to be able to run like a, yeah. a separate game and session. The thing is what I did is I took his side adventure and I wove it into the game. So as he was gone, I was building a side adventure and I was putting it into the game. So there was there was rumors and there was, you know, little snippets here and there in the in the day-to-day game that when he came back in and his character started talking about these things, they're like, Oh, we heard that rumor from, you know, this guy, or oh yeah, we saw that in you know in the in the village newspaper or whatever, you know. So that I tied it all together and it, Further on down, it actually came back around and became one of the focal points of that adventure. That is a really good idea. I will have to consider stealing that one of these days. But Well, like you said, it's a time-consuming thing, and I didn't have kids at the time. I would never do that now. I don't, I don't have the time. Yeah. Like I said, if I ever get the time, that, like, that's why I said. If, if I ever got the time, I, would, you know, I wouldn't mind doing something like that. It's just... I have a hard enough time fitting in my my current game sessions, so having to do like, well, it would be fun to do one-on-ones, it's not always going to have the, the, the feasibility for the time. Yep. But, no, I've done things like that. Like I said, before I had kids, at one point, I, you know, I didn't want to do the standard, well, you're all in a bar, and, you know, so I'm like, I set aside the first two weeks of a, of a session, and I had six players, and each of those nights, I, I had three of them come at different times. I did like an hour with each of them to introduce the to introduce the game, and then I threw them all together. With the first night they were together, they're all standing there, and I said, "Roll initiative." So you know, I've done things like that, and it's really cool, and it's a lot of fun. But then again, <laughs> time consuming, and consuming. yeah, and I, you know, there's this post that was made on the the D&D memes uh, Facebook page. It was a cartoon. It was like on one panel they had one guy with his arm up in the air, a stick figure with his arm up in the air. On the other side it had three others and it's like on the left side the single guy's like, what are we? And on the other side the other three guys are like, gamers! On the second one, what do we want to play? When do we want it? One of them's like, Saturday! Monday, Friday, and it's like, Monday, I cannot. I work Saturday. Let's postpone. Yep. <laughs> and yeah, and that just, I think, it's one yeah. of those things that's funny because it's true. And that's why I think it's, as a game master, you really need to have these contingency plans for, or at least an idea of how you want to handle absent players because we know that sometimes you're not going to be able to attend every single game session. Yep. So we, we talked a lot about absent players. Late players, I just ignore them until they get there. Yeah, that's what I always do. They're Again, there, but they're not there. Yeah. I said, I assume your character's there doing something. Yep, exactly. But even if it's just guarding the rear. 
Yep. Even if you're just staking the donkey. Yeah. (laughs) That's an inside joke. I'll have to tell you that story sometime, but. Okay. So on to the next topic we were thinking that uh, we wanted to discuss party infighting. And let me give you a story from my current group. That's playing first edition or actually second edition. Sorry. Um, We've, we're starting the uh, first edition module. The, I think it's the assault on the area of the slave Lords, but our game master is going to be running us through the Slave Lords set, except we're doing second edition characters instead of first. But when we first started, you know, of course, he wanted to take us on a few adventures so we could level up and get to high enough level. Well, uh, one of the players in the party was playing a necromancer. And, you know, he had a sling staff for his his, pri- his uh, primary weapon. And it was a situation where, you know, we were in a like a cave so of course there was limited mobility and you know the the frontline characters were fighting some i think they were kobolds or goblins i i don't quite remember but the wizard was like i know i'm going to use my sling staff to you, you know fire at one of the goblins unfortunately while well, our game master has been using the critical hit and the critical miss charts that he i don't remember if he got them from dragon magazine or just found them on a website and we were advising him, you know, you probably, because he's still a newer player, we're like, you know, you probably don't want to fire into melee because if you miss, you might hit one of your allies. Yeah, especially first, second edition, because they had rules for that. Yep. If you missed by more than, I think it was four, you hit a friendly. Yep. And he rolled a, a natural one. Yay! So then, yep, so the game master rolled the... uh you know, rolled on his critical miss chart and got the result, kill random ally. So we rolled the dice and one of the, the, we had a character in the party who was playing a ninja and he accidentally killed the ninja. Ooh, not sneaky ninja. Yes. So he, needless to say, that caused a lot of infighting with, you know, with that particular character where it's been taking a while for that character to regain the trust of the other players. Well, well, here's, here's, Here's a question for you, a different take on this. All right, so we're calling it party infighting, and we're and we're saying it's the necromancer's fault, right? Because he shot into melee. But can't some of that blame go on the DM? Because you know it's a critical chart, but that doesn't mean you have to follow it. I mean, if if as a DM you know that's going to cause party infighting, you can change the critical table. I can see both sides of the argument, honestly. Obviously, the critical miss and critical hit charts are optional. And I believe they do mention this in the second edition player's handbook, that the reason they don't have um, you know, those critical hit charts is because while it's great fun to have your fighter kill a dragon with one hit... It kind of, you know, it kind of sucks. I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, it kind of sucks to have your 12th level fighter killed by a goblin because he got a lucky hit in with an arrow or, a, you know, a dagger. So, um, I, I mean, I guess in a way you could, I mean, I wouldn't really say that it's necessarily the game master's fault. I mean, I think that sometimes you could, you could use a little discretion, especially at first level, because your characters are squishy enough as it is. Yeah, I mean, let's face it. You know, you generally a first level character. You're not going to have a ton of hit points, and you're not going to have access to stuff like raise dead or 
um, you know, anything that might bring that resurrection spell. <laughs> resurrection spells are fun because you could come back as anything. That's reincarnation. If that's different. reincarnation, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. So I mean, you're not going to have access to those spells, and I mean, first level characters can be I said they can be hard enough to advance as it is. But on the other hand, you know, he did let us know that he is using these charts. So as a player, we had to realize that, okay, maybe we do need to be a little more strategic, especially with, since we know he's using the critical fumble charts. Yeah. And that's a good argument too. I just, as you were talking about it as a, as a, as a DM, I'm going, you know, there, there is a certain amount of discretion. And like you said, especially at first level, that sure you can use these and they can be fun, but if this one's going to kill them, go up a level where it does you know max damage or something. Yeah, it's just, it's it's a matter of balance again. Yeah, and critical. I mean, c- critical hits and critical misses are. I said that's. I know I say this a lot, but that's a topic that I'm sure we could devote an entire show to. So, how do you handle party infighting? All right, I don't think you're ready for this answer, but I'll tell you. Okay. I love it. <laughs> I nurture it and I play with it. So you just kind of sit back and watch the show? I do. My, the groups I play with, if party infighting... And, and here's, the, here's the dividing line. is If party infighting starts, I know that this group, when I'm done that night, they're going to go, Haha, wasn't that funny? How you did this and I did this and then we were at each other and I killed you and you're like, yeah, you bastard, you know, you killed me, but I'll see you next week. Yeah, and that's right. This is like where I'm doing it this summer where like half the group I've never gamed with before. I'm going to I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop party infighting out real quick. Yeah, and I think that's a good call where you really have to kind of know your group. Now, if you're if you're playing with people that you've been friends with for many years, you've been gaming for many years, yeah, you can let it happen. But I think, like in my situation, where a lot of the times I game with a group of people at you know our local hobby store, and in the current group that we're with, you know, I'm friends on Facebook with uh, a few of them, and you know, some of them I do associate with outside of the gaming table. But when you do have people that the only time you see them is when you're gaming, you know, and if you've got a whole group of people like that, yeah, you do got to, I think sometimes you do have to kind of step in. But the reason I think it can be difficult is if the party is role-playing their characters, then as a game master, there's nothing you can really or really should do about it. Uh, you know, if if Bob the Thief decides that he wants to try to steal you know, Joe the Fighter's uh, coin pouch, you should let him try that. Now, if it is a situation, though, where it goes beyond the characters, where it actually starts to come to the point where, you know, the person playing the thief, I'm sorry, the person playing the fighter is about ready to punch the person playing the thief, then you got to kind of step in and try to find a way to, you know, to cool everyone down. It's the real world repercussions. If I think Joe's going to punch Bob because Joe stole Bob's gold, you know, you got to put an end to that. I don't want anybody in my front yard beating each other up over a game. Exactly. And in my, in my opinion, you know, what I do if I have situations where there's a bit of party infighting, 
sometimes I'll try to make suggestions to nudge the players towards a um, you know a peaceful resolution. Mm-hmm. But if it's a situation where I think the players can handle it, where they're not going to take the you know they're not going to take this feud you know to the real world. If you know if I think they can handle it, they've got that level of maturity. Then hey, I'm going to sit back, I'm going to grab my popcorn, and I'm going to grab my soda, and I'm going to watch it play out. I have a group that. I play with once a month. We played last night. It's it's a very diverse group, and actually, you you might find this interesting. It's a 50-50 split with men and women, which you don't see a lot of. It does happen, but you don't see a lot of it, you know. And uh, we just had a new girl join last night. Uh, I think she's going to fit in the group pretty well. The only person she knows is me. She's a friend of mine for years. But... Um, you know, she came in and everybody treated her just like we treat everybody else. And then today at work, you know, we're kind of emailing back and forth and I'm like, what do you think? You know, and she's like, I just really hope they like me. And I'm like, you, you fit right in, you know, it's (laughs) not, it, you know, you fit right into the group. I don't think it's going to be a problem. So, you know, and it only works, I think, because I know her and I know what she's like and who she is. And I saw the rest of the group and I said, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's not going to be a problem. Yeah, because I, I know it can always be tricky trying to ease a person into the group, especially if it's a situation where, I mean, I, I can, I'm not sure because, I mean, I've only, I've only had a few female friends that I've gamed with. And I, usually for a lot of the groups I've played with, there's rarely more than one or two, um, you know, women in the party. So... And like I said, I, I should start a drinking game. Every time you hear me use this phrase, take a swig of whatever you're drinking. Again, a topic for a future episode, but um, <laughs> I'm <talking> I, radio. <laughs> but I think that you know it can certainly be well, not just for you know females, but for anyone. If you are coming into a group of complete strangers, where you know getting that level of acceptance. And that's one of the situations where I think if there is a potential for party infighting where, you know, you've got someone you've been gaming with for a long time who is uh, starting to get angry with someone who's a newcomer, then, yeah, you definitely got to, you know, to step in there and make sure that everything gets resolved peacefully. So have you ever done this where you have, you know, pulled one of the players aside either before the campaign started or, you know, a session or two in and said, hey, you want to be the inside guy for the bad guys? Do you want to be the confidence man? Do you want to be the interloper? The guy that's part of the team but not really part of the team, just to give it that that edge, you know, where everybody's like, you know, something's going on here. We know it's not right, but we don't know exactly what's going on. Have you ever done something like that? I have not. I've actually never thought about that. Um, I mean, I think that could be a really interesting idea with the right group. I've, I have one friend that I've, uh, my current game group, he kind of fell into that whole role on his own. Um, he showed me the character background he made, and honestly, for the background his character had, it did fit, you know, rather well. Right, and that's usually, that's one thing, I don't know if you do that, I always make my characters write a background. I want to know where the character came from. I want to know, you know, what their background was. And I always say, don't just tell me, you know, don't just tell me about why you're a thief or when you, you know, from the time you became a thief. Tell me about your childhood. 
I generally don't do that. I mean, I've I've played with some friends who will make you know very intricate backstories. I mean, I usually I like it if my players can come up with something of a backstory, and this actually leads to the next point of keeping players interested. Um, it is always it can be helpful if you do have some background knowledge of that of each character. Let's say, for example, that one of the players in your party they wrote into their backstory that they were a former slave and they escaped. So that's something that I can use to bring, you know, that part of the character's background into the campaign. You know, every now and then you might have to fight against uh, the, you know, the slave owner who wants to try to get the slave back. So what are some of your ideas or some of the things that you do when trying to keep players interested? Well, when I notice a single player kind of zoning out or, or you know, pulling out a phone or, you know, that usually the one thing I tell people is bring your phone to the table. Please don't touch it. Once I see a player that starts becoming not interested, um, the nice thing about the fact that I don't use pre-canned adventures is I can be like, okay, so... Bob sitting at the end of the table, I see him under the table there, you know, and he's doing something on his phone. And I'll just be like, and then I'll take whatever scene I'm in and I'll, and I'll twist it so it kind of focuses on him for a short time, a long time. It just depends. And I'll say, okay, so uh, Bob, uh, this happens. What do you do? You know, and of course, you, can, you, you already know that they're uninterested because they've got the phone out and, and the screen is lit up, you know. So you'll get that momentary of what what's going on, and then I'll say it again. I'll say, okay, this is just what happened. What do you do? And they're like, um, I'm like, come on, what do you do? This is happening. You know, it's you know, it's it's gonna happen right now. So you need to make a decision, and that just gets their brain back into the game. Yeah, definitely a good idea. Especially, I mean, one way I could think to use that just off the top of my head is, uh, let's say you've got a player who's uh, the cleric, and again, he's getting kind of bored and he's sitting there playing Candy Crush on his phone, you might be like, okay, uh, all of a sudden a horde of zombies attacks from the rear. So now it's like, okay, the the guy playing the cleric is now like, okay, I better whip out the holy symbol and try to turn undead. So that's definitely a good idea. Try to come up with an on-the-fly scenario that will bring that particular character back into the game. Now, as one thing I can see doing for like the long term, one idea that I got from my current game master, and again, this is one I talked about, we're doing the second edition campaign. He came up with an idea that uh, he's using specifically for the person who's playing the ninja. He decided that for that particular player, you know, the, the head of his ninja clan decided that, okay, there's these little statues and you have to find them. So that's one way that you can, especially if you've got someone who does tend to become disinterested in the campaign, you could give them some special mission that they have to accomplish. And like I said, in the case of our ninja, he has to, you know, he has the secret mission that, you know, the game master told me this out of game, of course, so, you know, none of the other players realize this. He has to try to find these special items. So that can be a good way to approach players who tend to show chronic disinterest. 
try to give them something that's going to invest their character in the game and make them want to pay more attention. Yeah, I find the most disinterested players, myself included, are DMs. Why is that? Because, how do I explain this? Because there's not enough to do. So now I'm playing one character versus playing an entire world of characters. Okay? So when I play this entire world of characters, I'm always part of it. I'm always in the forefront. I'm always doing something. Now, it might be as diff- 20 different characters in a night, but I'm always, I'm always going forward. Whereas when I'm playing a single character, I've got to wait my turn. And as a DM, I don't like waiting my turn. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that kind of uh, brings us into the next topic uh, with, and that's dealing with distracted players. And you already mentioned a little bit about it. And again, we were saying that sometimes, yeah, you're going to have the player that is going to, you know, pull out their phone or pull out a, you know, their Nintendo DS or their PlayStation portable or, you know, whatever. And they're going to start you know, dinking around on that instead of paying attention to the game. So it sounds like you enforce this policy where, you know, you can bring your phone to the game session, but you either turn it off or keep it in your pocket. Well, I, you know, because with my job, I can get a phone call at any time. So I understand that. And, you know, if they pick up their phone and I see them text quick, you know, like their wife texted them or their girlfriend or whatever, and they just need to throw off a quick text, that kind of stuff doesn't bother me because I do it all the time. I'll get a, I'll get an email, you know, at seven o'clock at night that oh I got to answer this quick, and my gamers are used to that. But when they sit there and start playing games, that irks me. <laughs> yeah, and I mean I I'm on the same page with you there. A quick text or something, but yeah, if you're gonna start devoting time to playing a game, that can get kind of annoying. So, right. so the whole idea is that this is a social gathering of people come together to tell a cooperative story. Exactly. If you want to play Candy Crush on your phone, do that on your own time, darn it. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It sounds very curmudgeonly and very like, oh, you're not, you're not, you know, you're not invested in this. You're not, and and it's not that at all. And And it falls upon us as DMs to say, okay, so he's obviously bored. What can I do to bring them back? What am I doing wrong? And, I have a I have a horrible habit of when I'm done for the night I'm like so did everybody have fun, you know? Uh, what can I do different? What what would you like to see? What would you, you know? And maybe I shouldn't do that because you know obviously I don't have a problem with getting gamers. If my wife let me and I had the time, I could run a game every night for a different group of people that ask me to run games. You know, I got to figure out how to make money doing this. Oh uh, yeah, I, I would love it if I could do something like that. So if I could learn how to make money as a GM, I think my wife would let me game every night of the week. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, Chad, game master for hire. But right? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you want to talk about the tough, tough love approach, though. Um, my again, this is in my current campaign. One of our party members is a bard, and usually what he would do, it's like he would sit in the back of the party. And usually all he would do is play his fiddle because then that would give us the, you know, the bonus to, to your attack rolls and saves. Well, that was all he was doing. And then he'd go, he'd start playing on his Nintendo DS. So 
what our the game master decided to start doing, it's like, guess what? We're in a dungeon. You're playing a musical instrument loudly. Guess what? You've just been jumped from behind by three goblins. Yeah, and that's, and that's a great way to deal with things like that. I made my GM really mad one time because I made a bard. Now, most of the groups I play in, they're like, you're playing a bard? And I'm like, bards are awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think I've said this before. If you're not sure if it's safe to go beyond that door, you open the bard, you th- you know, you open the door, you push the bard in, close the door, and if the bard starts screaming, you know that it's not safe. Right. Bards are so, useful. So what I did is, okay, so I had all the pump spells, you know, play my instrument, whatever. And one time, I, instead of playing a musical instrument or singing, I took orator. I would actually sit at the table and give a speech as they're gaming. Then what I did is we got higher in levels is um, I started stealing speeches because it got hard to write them all the time. So I'd go out and find a speech from somebody and I'd be like, all right, that's my speech for tonight. But I then, when we got up higher levels, I bought a ring of invisibility. So I would go into these rooms, we'd get into combat, I would go invisible, and then I would start orating as loud as I possibly could. And so it would echo around, and my thought was, well, it'll confuse the enemy. And which it worked for a few times, and then I think the DM got sick of me doing these speeches, and so started uh, confusing my people, too, you know. And it was just it was just one of those things where I took a character concept and went, eh, here's a couple fingers for you. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I think one way that you can, and this really... Uh, plays into how we are keeping players interested. If you do have a player that is getting distracted, um, you know, I said, do what my game master did. It's like, okay, you've got a group of enemies that have, you know, jumped your character, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, time to put away the game and pay attention to the role playing game. Or you're going to die. Your piece of paper is going to get crumpled. Yeah. And I mean, I think it can be tough, though. I mean, I, I can see, of course, you want to allow phones because you never know when someone's going to get a call. But, uh, I mean, could you see doing, like, a policy like, okay, no Nintendo DSs or no Game Boys at the, you know, at the table? Yep. Every time I volunteer for the high school in town here, that's the rule. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't allow any electronics, including phones, when I run for those guys. Yeah, and... Uh, unfortunately, though, if it becomes like a chronic problem, you know, there's not really much you can... I mean, I, that's where I think it can be kind of hard because it's a game. We're there to have fun. We're there to socialize. So, you you know, again, you don't want that player to feel like you're picking on him. And sometimes you do have to kind of take that player aside and go, look, please stop playing your game while we're trying to role play. Uh, it's getting a little distracting and you really got to kind of know the person you're talking to to determine how they're going to take that. Right. And on top of that, you know, if it becomes a chronic issue, maybe that's the player you asked to leave the table. I Nobody likes doing it. You know, over the years I've done it a time or two. Nobody likes doing it. Nobody likes being the guy that's asked to leave. But, you know, if it becomes a chronic issue or there's other issues in the group where that person just doesn't fit, Sometimes that's the job of the DM to keep peace because if you want your game to continue and everybody's like, well, if that, you know, a-hole is going to keep playing, I'm done. And you're going to lose the rest of your group? What do you do? You know? Yeah, and and that is definitely 
one of the things that can be very tricky about being a game master. First and foremost, your responsibility is to keep the game running smoothly. And I mean, I'm sure there's going to be, be people that disagree with me, but I think it is also part of the game master's responsibility to make sure everyone is enjoying themselves as much as they can. Yep. And yeah, we all know it's no fun to have your player get killed by a critical miss, but still, you got to try to find some way to work with it. Well, I think we've talked to this topic to death for now. So if, Chad, if people want to hear more of you, specifically your writings, where can they find it? Well, you can find mine and my fellow travelers along this life writings at uh, www.nuosu.blogspot.com. That's where myself and a few other writers, we do some life affirmation stuff. However, if you want to uh, look more into what I do gaming-wise, you can check out www.evercon.org. Um, Evercon is a yearly game convention in the Wausau, Wisconsin area. We're getting ramped up now. We're starting to get a lot of stuff going for our 2017 convention, which is in January. January 6th to the 8th, actually. Um, we have just opened up uh, vendor registration and artist registration, and uh, we'll shortly be opening uh, events registration. And then I believe September sometime we'll be opening pre-reg for Congoers. So it's all happening, and it's all happening fast. Okay. Yep. And like I said I hope to be able to make it up there. So don't know if I'm going to be a vendor, but I hope to at least get up there to uh, to run a game or two. Of course, you can go to podbean.com and listen to past episodes. You can also go check out my Point of Insanity Game Studio channel on YouTube. And feel free to stop by Point of Insanity Game Studio on Facebook. Like the page, leave a comment, and hey, if you've got ideas for other topics that you want, might want to see me cover in the future, feel free to leave suggestions, and I'll certainly keep them in mind. Thanks again for tuning in, and have a good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming.